Well, I hope you guys are doing great this morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can uh, take them out and open them to the book of Titus. Uh, Titus chapter 2. We'll begin uh, reading a short paragraph in Paul's letter there, uh, beginning in verse 11. In just a minute, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I need to uh, begin this morning by letting you in on a little backstage past regarding um, my sermonic skill. Um, Most weeks, um, though I have been instructed in seminary repeatedly that you are supposed to craft a sermon title that perfectly accentuates the message that you are going to bring that morning, Um, most weeks my sermon titles amount to something like September the 11th or... Mark chapter 1. That's about as far as my sermon title game goes, but I thought this morning being the first day of a new year that I would try to up my game a bit. So this morning's sermon title is as follows. Why New Year's resolutions are stupid, but why you should make them or something like them anyway. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. Why New Year's resolutions are stupid, but why you should make them, or parenthetically, something like them anyway. Now, you're going to say, by January 8th, we expect you to revert back to your old pattern of September the whatever, or January 8th, or whatever. Okay, but this is where we're going. Um, We want to frame in uh, a new year by looking at uh, this paragraph from Paul's letter regarding our activity as believers, as followers of Jesus, and what we should prioritize heading into a new year. Now, I know that you can tell from my muscular physique that I used to be a professional runner. Um, not, not actually, but one year I set as a goal that uh, I was going to run a half marathon. Um, and I actually did. I'm surprised you don't know that because I don't have the 13.2 bumper sticker uh, on my car because I knew Brandon would punch me in the teeth if I put that on my car. Um, However, I decided that I wanted to to run, and so I registered for some silly race in Asheville and almost killed myself. Um, I had no concept, didn't train. I had run on a treadmill a bit up to that point. Uh, but said this would be fun, and I can say that I've done it. Now, what I didn't know about running a half marathon is along the way you have the the cheer people, you know, holding signs and encouraging and ringing silly bells, and then you have, you know, the the mile markers along the way, one, two, three, so on and so forth, signs along the path, and these mile markers provide encouragement for a dude like me that the finish line is getting closer, right? And when I can catch my breath, a bit of reflection on the fact I've actually come this far. I'm at eight miles. I've never run that far in my life, right? Now, every one of those mile markers, seven, eight, nine, ten, they're they're arbitrary points along the way. Each step is simply one step closer to the finish line. The step before crossing the eighth mile marker is no different than the step right before it, or the step that would follow. It's, it's all just one step closer. And the same is true for us as we start a new year. In many ways, this day is an, is an arbitrary mile marker. Today is no more or less important than yesterday or tomorrow. But it is important. 
And the typical emotions we face when we hit the mile marker of a new year are very similar to those you have when you run. One of three things. I can't believe I've got so far to go, right? You look back with guilt at the unfinished task or dreams or how foolish your New Year's resolution list was from last year. There are far more things that are unfinished on that list than things that you can cross off. Or secondly, I want to quit, right? This is stupid. You look back with shame at the mistakes you've made and just decide, I, I want to give up. Or the rare few, I can't wait, looking forward with hope that the finish line is getting closer. For those of us in the room this morning who have a relationship with God because of Jesus, the same finish line awaits us all. And this is the finish line that Paul points to in this paragraph in Titus 2, verse 11. So let's read it together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now there we really see framed in both the the ultimate finish line that awaits us all. We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what, what is, what amounts to the New Year's resolution that we all aspire to, this last phrase, that we would be zealous for good works. And in many ways, anything that you would put on your New Year's resolution list goes under that heading as a Christ follower. I want to be zealous for good works in some aspect of my life. But as we see in this text, while that ultimate finish line is the main thing, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, is not the only thing. Notice, look back over this paragraph, the the number of past tense claims with present tense implications in this paragraph. Notice what he says. He's going to give you six that I see clearly. The grace of God has appeared, one. This grace of God, two, has brought salvation for all people. Three, this this grace and salvation has trained us to renounce ungodliness. Four, that same training is training us to live godly lives. Then further down, fifth, we've been redeemed from lawlessness. And sixth, we are purified as a people for God's own possession. So the finish line is future tense. But the future tense finish line has a ton of present tense implications. And this is the hope, and in fact, this is the starting point for us on January 1st. Consider these claims. The grace of God has appeared. So regardless of what you've done or what you will do this year, you start this year with a vast abundance of the grace of God. Right? It's the starting point. Apart from anything that you do. It has happened in the past. It is a present tense reality. 
That present tense reality has brought salvation for all people. So regardless of your situation, if you know Jesus, you stand this morning free from the wrath of God, declared permanently not guilty for your sins. That's your starting point. Apart from anything that you do, that's where you begin this year. This grace of God is training you. You have the Spirit of God inside of you actively empowering you to do what you can't do on your own. Renounce ungodliness and pursue godliness. This is your starting point heading into a new year. You're redeemed from lawlessness. You have been bought back from enslavement to sin. This is your starting point heading into a new year. And, and this is astounding, you are a purified people this morning. You are given a righteousness that you did not earn, imputed to you because of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. This, again, is your starting point heading into this new year. So, whatever we do with New Year's resolutions, they don't save you any more than do your unfilled resolutions from last year. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes Uh, the context of New Year's resolutions. And here he's specifically talking to those of you who perhaps uh, feel number one or number two, man, I've got so far to go or I just want to quit. And he writes this, would you like to get rid of this spiritual depression? The first thing you have to do is say farewell now once and forever to your past. Realize that it's been covered and blotted out in Christ Never look back at your sins again. Say, it's finished. It's covered by the blood of Christ. That is your first step. Take that and finish with yourselves and all this talk about goodness and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only then that true happiness and joy are possible for you. What you need is not to make resolutions to live a better life, to start fasting and sweating and praying. No, You just begin to say, I rest my faith on him alone who died for my transgressions to atone. Okay, So this, I think, frames for us the starting point for any consideration of New Year's resolutions, and it it helps us uncover why, why my beautiful sermon title begins with this notion that New Year's resolutions are dumb. One through six in our list, these present tense claims reveal the typical problem with resolutions. All the things that we just pointed to are quite passive in nature. They are something that happens to us, not necessarily something that we do. They're the work of God. They're they're the result of God's work on our behalf. And this stands in stark contrast to the way that we typically approach resolutions. They often begin this way. I'm not skinny enough. I don't have enough money in my bank account. I'm not spending enough time with my kids or my wife. I'm being lazy in my schoolwork. And the list can go on and on. These are self-referential problems. I find this thing displeasing about me, and I want to change it. And these two eyes get at the heart of the problem with New Year's resolutions. First, I find this displeasing. Often, this doesn't take into account whether or not my appraisal squares with that of God's. 
does what I find displeasing actually line up with what God finds displeasing about my life? And the second I, they propose self-referential solutions. I resolve to do this and this thing to change myself, which, as we all know, quickly devolves into some type of self-salvation project that becomes a subtle or perhaps not so subtle form of idolatry. Think about how this plays out with the typical New Year's resolution of weight loss. We do it if we do it, and it quickly becomes our source of identity. Which diet plan do you do? Where can I go to find the online help group that squares with the diet plan that I've chosen? Every time I'm in conversation with someone else, I'm going to talk about our journey through weight loss and post before and after pictures that make me feel good about me because other people say that they like what's going on with me. And what can subtly happen to us is a good thing, like the goal of weight loss, can devolve into our identity apart from the person and work of Christ. And this can happen in all sorts of areas. So then one of two things happen to self-referential goals and self-referential solutions. They fail, or they lack staying power, or, and I think this is more dangerous, they succeed, but they give us no reason to point praise to God. If our plans and actions aren't grounded in God's work and the gospel, then whatever we do, wherever we end up, that finish line doesn't necessitate the grace of God to get there in the first place. So we have a really hard time with Jesus' words in John 15, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Now what does this mean? Clearly, I can do all sorts of things apart from him. In fact, this seems to me to be at the core of the plight of the human condition. We daily, moment by moment, fight the temptation to do things in our own power. But if you're familiar with the context of John 15, you know that Jesus says these words in the context of of testifying to the fact that you can't bear fruit apart from him. And I think this is the big point. You can do all sorts of things. Seemingly, you can do all sorts of good things. But you can't bear fruit apart from the grace of God. Okay? So yes, you can drop 10 pounds in 2017. But you can't do anything that's truly going to matter in the economy of the kingdom of God without the grace of God empowering those. You can resolve all you want, but apart from God's grace, your resolutions don't matter. But, framed in this manner, I would suggest that resolutions can be a really helpful process for the disciple of Jesus. And here's why, or perhaps here's how to begin. I believe that the resolutions that we make heading into any new year can be framed around the two main categories that are derived from Titus 2. As you saw me say at the outset, I think the main header on our resolutions is that we would be zealous for good works. 
We want to be a people who are increasing in zeal for the good works that Ephesians 2 tells us that God's already prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So how do we do that? Well, we see this, this dual nature of what the grace of God is empowering us to do in Titus 2, verse 11. It's training us, on the one hand, to renounce or put off ungodliness and worldly passions. And then conversely, it's training us to live self-controlled, upright, or godly lives. Paul's going to say elsewhere in Ephesians 4, 17-24 this, Now I say and testify to the Lord that you, these are believers, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and practice of every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him. That's like the Paul kidney punch there. Assuming that you actually heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then he does the same thing. He says, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off and put on. This is the process of maturation or sanctification for all of us who are in Christ, and it is, or should be, the constant, incessant work that we give ourselves to. Surely it will never be perfected until we put on new bodies in heaven. And our putting off and putting on is predicated on the work of Jesus Christ. It depends on the reception of the gifts spoken about in Titus 2, 11 through 13. But based on those things being true, based on the grace of God, the salvation that he's given, the spirit that indwells us, the redemption that we've received, and the purification, the imputed righteousness that's given us, we then can embark on the lifelong process of putting off and putting on. And I would encourage you that this frame, put off and put on, provides really helpful handles for how you think about the things that you're going to give yourself to or not give yourself to heading into 2017. Perhaps putting off selfishness is a better goal than putting aside a certain amount in your savings account this year. Perhaps putting off anger is a better goal than improving your relationship with your children. Perhaps putting off envy is a better goal than the pursuit of another worldly trinket. Or putting on. Maybe self-control is a far better goal than losing 10 pounds. Maybe love is a far better goal than a weekly date night. Maybe joy is a far better goal than deleting or limiting your social media usage. 
this process of putting on and putting off is the work of a follower of Jesus, and in fact, it is the very thing that the Spirit indwells us to accomplish. Think about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These, friends, are the work of ours heading into 2017. And I think we see a great example of this in a contrast between two historic figures. The first, and perhaps the most famous of these, are Jonathan Edwards' New Year's Resolutions. He begins, I'll I'll read a couple for you. He begins with this header over his resolutions. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Now, the first aside is I want us all to attempt to craft our resolutions using that type of language, right? It's beautiful. Resolution number eight, resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and in doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others and to let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion for my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Resolution number 40. Yeah, number 40. Resolve to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to my eating and drinking. Resolution number 56. Resolved never to give over, or in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. Or resolution number 70, let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. Now, reading Edward's resolutions, I'm forced to act, bro, didn't they have a gym back in the day, right? Like, good grief, man. In contrast to this, notice this list from Benjamin Franklin, made in 1726 at the age of 20. Franklin lists first on his list temperance. He says his resolution is to eat not to dullness or drink not to elation. Order, let all things have their places. Let each part of your business have its time. Industry. Lose no time. Always be employed in something useful and cut off all unnecessary actions. Cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. He would be thoroughly unimpressed with my truck. Or lastly, humility, to imitate Jesus and Socrates. These 13 virtues were arranged on a chart that Franklin kept with him at all times, where he attempted at the end of each day to score himself on how well he was doing at keeping up with growth in these 13 areas. And like us, He found that he had problems keeping up with all of them at once, so he tried focusing on one at a time. 
when he eventually found that he wasn't even making any progress in that one, he gave up the whole plan altogether. Now, you might quickly push back this morning and say, but Matt, the outcome seems just the same. I'm still going to run after trying to lose some weight. I'm still going to run after prioritizing a date night with my wife. I'm still going to run after using my financial resources more effectively for the kingdom of God. But we all know that the path you take to get somewhere matters. It matters in more ways than we give it credit for. Kids cleaning their room is a prime example. You can either do it by daddy spanking you so that you go do it, or you can do it of your own volition. Either way, that room's getting clean today. But the path for that kid makes all the difference. Or the doctor's diagnosis that you have high blood pressure. You can take ongoing medication for the rest of your life, or you can stop going to McDonald's every day. The same result might occur. You're going to have lower blood pressure, but the path to get to that goal matters. It matters both in your ability to maintain the thing that you set your mind to, and it matters in your joy along the way. Now notice I said at the outset in my eloquent sermon title, parenthetically, resolutions or, or something like resolutions. Uh, it is easy for us this morning, in fact, my, my propensity is to mock New Year's resolutions. But the reality is this process of considering what we might put off and what we might put on is something that we should all be doing all of the time. In fact, it is a fundamental act of worship for the follower of Jesus. Reflecting on our lives and empowered by God's Spirit, taking steps to grow in grace and godliness. Isn't this what it means to walk with God on a regular basis? With prayerful thought and attention, committing ourselves to certain things which, if done, change the trajectory of our lives. So one writer says, we might better speak of New Year's resolutions as new creation everyday resolutions. This is simply the work that worshipful obedience requires. And, and this is great encouragement for us this morning, this work is for our good. Notice Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent surely lead to advantage. So the work of worshipful obedience, of considering your life, what you might put off and what you might put, off, put on, far from some type of arbitrary add-on to your life, these things matter. And I, even reflecting this week, I am often struck by how this plays out in my life and in the life of those that I walk with. I think of my conversion between my freshman and sophomore year in college, where in a conversation, I decided to transfer from NC State to come to 
some school in Greenville to work at White Oak Baptist Church under Albert Allen's tutelage. I got into North Greenville, uh, got rejected at Furman, but driving in my truck, I made a decision to call a former Furman grad and ask if he would write a letter on my behalf why I should get into Furman University. He did so, and three days before classes started my sophomore year, I received a phone call that I got into Furman University. That's where I went. Upon graduation from Furman, I moved to Toronto, Canada, and spent four months sleeping in a Pentecostal church's choir loft on an air mattress, attempting to share the gospel with the impoverished inner-city community of Toronto. And walking the streets one day in Toronto, I decided that I needed some time to further reflect and grow and mature, so I was going to move back to Greenville and get a job. And that's what I did. I came back here and worked third shift at a boys' home trying to keep kids from sneaking out in the middle of the night. And though that job was far from fulfilling, that job brought me back to Greenville where within a couple of months I met Sarah and we were married. That walking the street decision to come back to Greenville had monumentous, life-changing implications for me. I've considered numerous different career paths along the way, but one day in a conversation with Sarah in our garage, I resolved to go to seminary in hopes that perhaps God would prepare me to become a pastor. And God in his kindness did, and in large measure, that garage conversation is why I'm standing before you preaching this morning. When I graduated from college, I'd read no more than five books from cover to cover. I hated it. But I determined that if I was going to teach and lead, I had to train myself to be a reader and thinker. And so I did. I hated the mornings. I was a night owl, as hard as that is for you to believe. And then Sarah and I began to have kids. And I had the stark realization that if I was going to get a moment of peace and quiet, it was going to happen over a cup of coffee in the mornings. So I resolved myself to reset my internal clock to get up in the mornings to spend time with the Lord in quiet reflection before I began my day. Now, don't get me wrong. There have been far more failures than successes along the way. There have been numerous times that I've tried to apply myself to something only to fail. But what I think is astounding is how all of these little resolutions, and even resolutions that I thought at the time were somewhat inconsequential, had the power to literally change every aspect of my life. Yes, God was at work. He was orchestrating all the details of my life to accomplish his good purposes. He knew I would be here today. He knew I would marry Sarah. He was orchestrating all that together. I don't have any stinking clue how all of that plays out. I don't know nor propose to understand how God is sovereignly orchestrating our lives so that they fit into these good works that he has already prepared that we would walk in. 
But what I do know is that he's at work sovereignly fulfilling his good purposes in my life. But from my perspective, he gives me very real choices to make in this world, choices that reflect worship to him, and choices that have the power to change the trajectory of my life. And he gives the same to you this morning. You have, empowered by God's Spirit, not a resolution list to make, but resolutions that can change the trajectory of your life. And by God's grace, he empowers you with his spirit to do those very things. So, framed appropriately, resolutions or something like them reflect an act of worshipful obedience that is mandatory for the follower of Jesus and determinative of the lives that you and I live. So this morning, before we stand and sing, as we typically speak of standing and singing as an act of worship, I want to give you some space of prayerful reflection and even journaling, doodling, that you would reflect on your putting off and putting on, and that you would consider the good purposes that God has for you to walk in heading into a new year. My prayer this morning for you is that the encouragement from Paul's paragraph in Titus 2 doesn't bog you down with shame, guilt, or despair, but empowers you with hope that surely God's good finish line awaits us all, and therefore we can resolve ourselves to things that matter here today. Let's spend some time in prayerful, silent reflection, and then Josh and the band will come and lead us as we stand to sing together. Father, as our minds reflect on the vast assortment of putting off and putting on that needs to take place in our lives, um, we do so with hope this morning that those acts of putting off and putting on aren't the means by which we achieve or merit salvation the means by which we earn favor with you, because if they were, we'd all be toast. We'd all be hopeless and helpless, and we would limp out of the room this morning in shame, guilt, and despair, because we know that whatever we put our minds to, we're going to come up short. And we also speak to you this morning with hope, because we know that for those of us who are in Christ, we're not running after this putting off and putting on in our own power. In ways that we can't comprehend, your spirit indwells us and empowers us to renounce ungodliness and pursue godliness. And that gives us great hope that our very real choices in this fallen and broken world are used by you in your sovereign economy to accomplish the good purposes that you have prepared beforehand that we would walk in. And it's astounding for us to think that the things that we would call to mind just in, a, in an arbitrary day like this morning can have the power to make monumental changes in our lives. And I ask that by your spirit you would do that uh, in my life this morning and in the lives of my friends. 
that we would not sleepwalk through a new day or a new year simply doing the things that we've done to get us to this point, but that we would consider our lives, that we would do as the prophet Haggai says, and we would consider our ways and assess how we are honoring you in our lives of worship. I recognize that the implications of that are endless for those in the room. And so I pray that as we stand and sing this morning, as we shake hands and give hugs, as we leave, as we have conversation with spouses and friends over lunch, conversations this evening, or sit down with a journal to make a list of things that we want to give ourselves to in 2017, God, I pray that your spirit would have deep and abiding work in our hearts and our lives and our conversations. And that this would be a year where your grace is felt clearly, where we grow in our joy and experience of you, where we learn to suffer with perseverance and hope, where we find joy in the circumstances of life, and where we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is to that finish line we look, and we pray that you would find us faithful in our running at this mile marker today. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Join me as we stand and sing.